Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me as usual. Darcy, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty okay. How about you? I'm doing good. Eating a little birthday cake. Ooh, nice. It's my significant other's birthday yesterday. And that what was... Kind of cake? Yeah, we got a cake for him because he what loves kind of cake? cake. It's just vanilla with vanilla frosting. Mm, nice. Which is what he prefers. Not necessarily what I prefer, but you got to go with what he wants. Yeah. We ended up going out last It's always delicious. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. But we went out last night, and ugh, I'm hurting today. I just can't <laughs> do it anymore. I have I don't no. have that young <laughs> mentality or young spirit uh-uh. anymore. I'm like, and, and I had to stay out late, and any time after, like, 10 o'clock. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I'm ready to roll and party, but that needs to end at, like, 9 o'clock. So. Yeah, we need to end it at a reasonable hour. <laughs> yeah, so that I can go home and go to bed like a uh-huh. normal human being. And if that doesn't happen, yeah. yeah. I mean, I already don't sleep well anyway, so, like... Yeah. I'm not a nice that, person. Like, yeah, I don't get taking away enough. from that time is not great. <laughs> no. I'm already kind of a cranky person just in general. <laughs> and then when I don't get any sleep, it's not a nice thing. <laughs> So, pardon my um, <laughs> abrasiveness. <laughs> Anybody who encountered me today <laughs> in and around this city. So, anyway, um, let's jump in and talk about today's episode. All right. Um, first and foremost, I saw that the Emmett Till, did you see the, the latest I update did. on that one? I did, unfortunately. So, the Mississippi yeah. jury declined to indict the accuser, which we called. I mean, we knew they weren't going to do it. Right. That it was for that variety was the expected reasons. result, unfortunately. But a jury in Mississippi has declined to bring charges against the woman whose accusation led to the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till, Carolyn Bryant Donham, now 87, has faced potential charges of kidnapping and manslaughter of the black boy, but jurors said there was insufficient evidence to indict her. It now looks unlikely she will ever be prosecuted over the 14-year-old's murder. The killing of Till galvanized the U.S. civil rights movement. We talked about it in an earlier podcast. Um, local district attorney Dwayne Richardson said in a statement that a grand jury in rural LaFleur County last week heard seven hours of testimony from investigators and witnesses, but the jurors had determined that there was not enough proof to indict Ms. Donham. Till's cousin, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., condemned the jury's decision as unfortunate but predictable, which, mm-hmm. again, like, could it have been any other outcome given the right. current state of affairs? The Chicago boy was visiting family when he entered the store in Money, Mississippi, where Miss Donham, then 21, worked. She was white, and she accused him of making improper advances and harassing her while she was alone in the shop. Her husband and brother-in-law kidnapped the boy at gunpoint, tortured him, and tossed his battered body into a river. At Till's funeral, his mother insisted on an open coffin so everybody could see what had been done, and the pictures of his brutalized remains were published and shocked the nation. The two kidnappers were acquitted by an all-white jury, and they later admitted to the killing in a magazine interview but could not be retried under U.S. law, and both of them are now dead. So, Mm -hmm. this is not surprising. In light of number one, so wasn't it the U.S. Department of Justice that declined to kind of move forward with a civil rights case on this that kind of... Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's always, I mean, this has kind of always been in the background um, because the Till family and relatives and, and civil rights 
advocates have always been kind of pushing for somebody to get held account, somebody to be held accountable for murdering this child. Um, so it's always kind of been going on in the background. And within the past 10 years, I think the Justice Department said they were going to look at it and determine if they were going to consider any civil rights violations, which would be a federal case as opposed to a state's case. Um, and they declined to move forward with that. And then just recently, you know, as we talked about, they uncovered this warrant that was brought by the state, which if there's... Or- In a basement, some courthouse right. basement somewhere. And if there's really already a warrant, that means that there, there's already... A judge has already signed off on prob- probable cause. Right. So, you know, it seems to me that it would be kind of obvious that they should be able to return an indictment, but... I I'm not, at the same time I'm not at all surprised. I I didn't think that they would. I think at this point, unfortunately, there are people that would rather just move on and not discuss it anymore, as opposed to actually seek justice for the wrongs that were committed. Yeah. So to your point, last year the U.S. government closed its own inquiry into whether Mrs. Donham could face charges in this case. Um, I think because of that reason that grand jury in Mississippi was like, okay, well, if this is what the federal government is saying, I think that they were colored by that opinion, first and foremost. And then secondly, I mean, Mississippi is not exactly known to be a bastion of civil rights and and justice and equality for black people. No, and I'd be interested to hear about the grand jury makeup because the area where this happened, if I'm not mistaken, I believe is has a pretty high population of African-Americans in the state. I know Mississippi Mississippi in general has, I believe, the highest population of African-Americans per capita in the country. So I'd be interested to see what the makeup of that grand jury was. But I I don't know that I think that they were maybe influenced by the federal, lack of federal um, indictment as much as they just kind of People just want it to go away. They just don't want to talk about it anymore, yeah. unfortunately. But it was in rural LaFleur County. Yeah, let me look up why that is. So I do wonder what the makeup of the jury was in that area as well. I mean, is it primarily blacks in that area? Is it primarily whites? I'd like to know. Let's see, LaFleur County. Okay, yeah, this is, it's where I thought it was. This is like kind of in the in the Delta um on the on the western side of the state near the Missis- near the Mississippi River um, population 23,000 it's pretty small yeah there there it it's um there will be a, a large yeah 73% african american that doesn't necessarily mean that the jury was 73% no no, it doesn't. Um, that's that's just from the, the 2020 census. Because um, the composition of a jury, when they're making that up, is largely determined by, and they mail these notices out, if you've never received a jury summons before. So they mail these out. So if you're not a registered voter, I don't believe you can get one. Correct. And if um, you can get one, it's... Um, it's interesting who these would actually go out to. And if you don't have a permanent address or if you're not, you know, checking your mail regularly or 
if you don't respond to the summons, the jury summons, then that's going to dictate the composition of the jury. Right. And grand juries are different than a standard jury trial, too, in, 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 in how they're conducted in some states is different from others. Like, I know in Alabama, I think they call you for, like, a month at a time or something, yeah. and they just call all of the cases that they have a grand jury for, and when you're on that grand jury, you hear all of them, and then you decide there's going to be an indictment for each of those cases, so you're not sitting just for one case. It's You're, you're sitting there for an extended period of time, and so it's also going to be you know, dependent on people that can get off of work or have that availability. And if you're the primary breadwinner like for too. your family and you can't take that time off right. work and so you get an exemption, then that's going to even further right. um, influence the composition of the jury. So yeah. um, interesting stuff. And again, we already knew this was going to happen. It's not like they were going to suddenly right. just be like, oh, we're going to prosecute. Plus, you know, this woman is in a nursing home and it's my understanding that People have been protesting outside of the nursing home and trying to get in. And <laughs> and she's not in Mississippi anymore. She's in thought, Georgia, South yeah, Carolina, North Carolina, like somewhere over there. Um, you know, mm. and... I mean, I understand seeking justice, but at the same time, it's like this woman has been free for the best years of her life, and she's probably has dementia and is, you know what I mean? So, like, how much is it really going to do if you prosecute this woman? I mean, I think it may be more symbolic than actual punishment for the person that committed a crime. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. But at the same time, like, her actions are largely responsible for hit, like, Emmett Till not being able to live those same best years of his life. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, well, it's just, you know, appalling that the two that actually did it couldn't be prosecuted. I mean, it's just... Right. <laughs> so... Anyway, I think we've yeah. pretty much hit this one, um, hit the nail on the head on this one. So yeah. let's move on to the main case for the day. Uh, I'm going to talk about a case that is kind of near and dear to my heart that I have been interested in for a very, very long time. I'm, I'm going to talk about Lizzie Borden today. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and this kind of has a little theme for the next few weeks of axe murderers. Yes. But I like this one just because it's a vintage case, and there's so many little side elements that are potentially at play in this one. But um, Lizzie Andrew Borden, it's interesting that her middle name is Andrew, was born in 1860 in the month of July in Fall River, Massachusetts. So Fall River, Massachusetts is like really a, a historic type of a town. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been to Massachusetts? I've never been. I've never. But it's located along the eastern shore of Mount Hope Bay and the mouth of the Taunton River. And it became famous during the 19th century as the leading textile manufacturing center in the U.S. But the textile industry has since moved on, but its impact on the city's culture and landscape is still pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. um, the motto for the city is, we'll try. Is what? We'll try. <laughs> we'll try. Okay. And it dates back to the Great Fire of 1843. Uh. Um, the Great Fire in, in, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, it's also known for the Lizzie Borden case, which we're going to talk about today. Um, the Fall River cult murders, Portuguese culture, and then a whole bunch of textile mills, and Battleship Cove, which is home of the world's largest collection of World War II naval vessels. Oh, that's cool. Including the USS Massachusetts. Nice. So, interesting sort of a place. It was heavily populated during the colonial period. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the Plymouth Colony in 18, in, excuse me, in 1620 is the area that would soon become Troy City. And it was largely inhabited by Native American tribes, which we all know what happened with that. Right. As you can imagine, when the textile industry kind of took over that area, there was a great deal of money that sort of came into that particular part of Massachusetts because of the textiles. But in any case, um, Miss Lizzie Borden was born to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. So you can see that she took on her father's first name as her middle name, which I thought was kind of interesting. That That's not super um, rare down here. Oh, it isn't? No. There's a lot of um, parents' maiden names or middle names and things like that that are used as middle names in the South. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of, I don't know why that is, but oh. yeah. Wow. So her father was of English and Welsh descent and grew up in a very modest sort of a atmosphere. And the family struggled financially when her father was younger, um, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential residents because of the textiles, right? Mm-hmm. But he eventually kind of started making more and more money, first with the sale of furniture and the manufacture and sale of furniture, and then with caskets, which is interesting. That is interesting. Um, and then he moved on to become a property developer. In addition to that, he was a director of a couple of textile mills and owned a whole lot of commercial property. So I think he, you know, started out, um, had a good head for business, and quickly mm-hmm. began to prosper and got his family in a much better situation and just kept building onto that. He was also the president of the Union Savings Bank and director of Dunfree Safe Deposit and Trust Company. So okay. a lot of money was yeah. coming in and out of his hands in, in many different ways. Um, what's interesting is that when he died, what do you think his estate was valued at? Um, if you had to guess, I see. I don't even know, like, because this is the eight. What, what year is this? This is the eighteen, the late eighteen hundreds. See, like, I don't even know how to guess that. But like, I do know that he had a lot of money, but they didn't live like they had a lot of money. No. So he died in eighteen ninety two, which is the same year my house yeah. was built. Um, but his estate was valued at about three hundred thousand dollars. Uh-huh. Which in today's money is about nine million six hundred thirty thousand. Jeez. So he had, you know, he wasn't disgustingly wealthy, but he was definitely very, very, very comfortable. I mean, nine million—that's that's I would call that pretty, pretty wealthy. But to your point, he was really known for being frugal, like super yeah. frugal. Like they didn't have indoor plumbing. And plumbing was actually kind of common for the wealthy in that area, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. Well, because they didn't live, like, in the wealthy side of town. They, they, they lived, like, right in the middle of town, right? Yeah. So when you don't have plumbing in the house, you have two options. Outhouse yeah. or chamber pot, which is essentially yeah. a bowl that was slid under the bed that you would go to the bathroom in, and then a maid or a housekeeper, whoever, would empty that chamber pot the next day if you had to go to the bathroom. Or you have to empty it yourself if you don't have. So, like, basically a bowl of piss or crap uh-huh. under your bed. Can you imagine? No, that sounds terrifying. I don't. I don't even like talking about bathroom things. Right. So, no, I don't want it under my bed. The area that they lived in 
was super, like the, the uber wealthy people lived there in Fall River, including Lizzie's dad's cousins. And they lived in the more fashionable neighborhood. So the kind of area that mm-hmm. Andrew lived in was not so much. And it was, I think, because he was yeah. frugal and he didn't want to spend the money to move up and go live in the more affluent neighborhood. Right. And um, the more affluent neighborhood called The Hill was a little bit farther from the industrial areas. And that's probably another reason why Andrew wanted to be where he was, because he was closer to his business endeavors. Right. But Lizzie and her, she had an older sister named Emma. And they had a pretty religious upbringing, which is not super uncommon especially for Mm -hmm. that area. And they went to the congregational church, the central congregational church. But as a little kid and as a young girl, she was allowed, Lizzie was allowed to be involved in church activities and she taught Sunday school, primarily to children of recent immigrants to the U.S. Oh, interesting. She had a little bit of like altruism within her. Right. Um, She was also involved in religious organizations like the Christian Endeavor Society. She was their secretary treasurer contemporary social movements like the women's christian temperance movement which is a group of ladies <sighs> that is dedicated to preventing people from drinking if you don't know what that is well i mean it's more like you you want to be super conservative you don't want to drink you want to be christian you want to be a good christian woman so well yes the end goal was prohib- prohibition yeah but it really started because men would spend their paychecks on alcohol and then they would come home and beat their wives. So it was kind of a movement to prevent domestic abuse. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's like, yes, it was anti-drinking, but like there were reasons behind it. I'm not like... Well, women didn't have rights back then to vote and they really were considered property of their husband. They had no right to get a divorce. They had no right to any property. So they were a possession of their husband. So these women, in an effort to sort of take back power and, and protect themselves, created this movement. Right. Um, and then Lizzie was also a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Oh, I don't even know what that okay. is. But in any case, I think back then, if you were a a lady of means, you know, you had very few options as far as wholesome things that you were allowed to do or be a part of. It wasn't like today where we could pretty much do whatever we want and no one cares. It was, you had the church and the church Mm -hmm. (laughs) and anything of religious background that you were allowed to do. Yeah, and like charity work, which was predominantly... It wasn't even like, considered organized through the church. Yes, yes. And it wasn't even considered acceptable to be part of like the temperance movement. That was something that women were quite rebellious on because yeah. if you were you were looked down upon for fighting for women's rights in many groups of people in many societies. Yeah. Because it was considered trashy, dirty, mm-hmm. low class. So interestingly enough, but three years after the death of Lizzie's mom, her dad remarried to a woman by the name of Abby. So, huh. I do not think that the relationship between the stepmother, Abby, and the stepdaughters was a positive one. Right. I believe that they called her Mrs. Borden. But they don't, but like... And they were cordial with her, but they basically believed that this woman married him for his money. Right, but like, everything I've ever heard has been like, from their perspective, like the daughter's perspective, so... 
I don't actually know that was she actually awful? Like No, I didn't I wasn't saying she was awful. I'm just saying they, no, no, they I had know. a cordial relationship with her, but they were not close. And right. I do like, not believe they like this woman, and probably for a variety of reasons. And this is an age-old story. You're a child. Right. You grow up in a happy, somewhat happy family, your mom, your dad, and then all of a sudden your, your parent passes away or they get a divorce. It's very rare that you like the incomer, <laughs> the step-parent. Right. I just, like, it, every time this story is told, every time they, they we talk about the stepmother, it's always the evil stepmother like line but yeah. I've actually never like the more I think about it I've never actually heard anything like that objectively says that she was I mean anything other than like a, a wife and I could set my, you know what I mean so I've never heard any particular stories associated with this of of Abby abusing them in any way right. shape or form but then again she's this new woman she's probably younger she comes into the house later when you know these girls are not young anymore i'm, I'm assuming right. they were teens at least by the time the stepmother comes around right and of course you're not going to like this woman who's now getting your father's attention and right. taking it from you yeah. Um, I think there were also other reasons why they disliked Abby. I think that their father contributed money to Abby to get housing mm-hmm. for members of Abby's family. And Lizzie and and her sister believed that their father should have given them a house and let them live in a house, or they should have upgraded their house to a wealthier neighborhood rather than give that money for housing to Abby's family. Hmm. They also lived with a a maid, Bridget Sullivan, and she was a 25-year-old woman that lived in the house with them. I think that that was not uncommon during that time period. Right. Um, She had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland, Um, and that was also kind of an indentured servitude sort of thing. And when I say that, it basically means that the family will pay the passage over for whoever the servant is going to be. Typically, a lot of them came from Ireland and from Europe, and so they would pay the passage over for this person, and then the the servant would be indebted to the payer, the, the person who, who paid for their indentured servitude. They would be indebted to that person for a certain amount of time in which they had to pay off the debt for the passage over. And then right. once that debt was paid off, then they were presumably free to go about their own business and live their life in the U.S. Right. In a, in a significant number of instances, this was definitely a situation where they could be taken advantage of. Oh, yeah. And there were many indentured servants that were pretty much, you know, they paid their passage and were still forced to work. Right. Or the, the master or whoever had purchased them would just determine that they had incurred other fees in addition to the passage over and keep them working for a very long time. Yeah. And it was a situation where it was very easy for these people to be taken advantage of because they didn't know their rights and they were new in this country. They didn't have their families with them for the most part. So it was an mm-hmm. interesting sort of a situation. But this particular um, live-in maid testified that Lizzie and Emma, the two daughters, rarely ate with their parents. And I don't know why this is, whether it's because they disliked them, whether the parents chose not to eat with them, but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. There was also various accounts that Lizzie and Emma sort of had situations where they didn't get along well with their parents. And when I say parents, it was primarily the father. Like there was one instance where her dad went into the barn and killed some birds that were in there. And evidently she had kind of built a little nest for them. And she was upset that he'd killed them. 
And then there were instances where the daughters were said to have taken extended, quote, vacations in New Bedford um, just to get away, I guess. But um, Lizzie also chose to stay in a local rooming house for a few days after coming back from one of those vacations in July of 1892. So she stayed at this rooming house, which is basically like a hotel. Yeah. For a couple of days before returning to the family residence, just prior to the death of Andrew and Abby. And she was an adult at this time. Yes. Yeah. Both of them were. Yeah. But according to um, accounts, tension had been growing in that family for quite a bit of time before the murder of Andrew and Abby. Mm-hmm. And again, I mentioned that there was some real estate involved. Andrew had bought gifts of real estate for Abby's family. And their stepmother's sister got a house. They also, at that time, kind of leveraged their family (laughs) to get a rental property for themselves, Emma and Lizzie. Okay. And that was the home they had lived in until their mother died. Um, And then they purchased it from their dad for about a, for $1 a few weeks before the murders and then sold the property back to their father for 5000 which is equivalent to about 150000 in, in current money. Right. Um, but the night before the murders actually happened, um, her, their uncle, his name was John, and he was the brother of their mother, mm-hmm. visited and was talking about some business matters with Andrew. There's some speculation as well that the conversations taking place between their uncle and father about property and property transfers may have already kind of aggravated the situation that was already tense. Um, And then the whole house had been ill Mm -hmm. prior to the murders as well. And it's said that they were, quote, violently ill. So that's what it sounds like. Um... Family friends say that they believe it was mutton left on the stove to use in meals over several days that caused this. Um, But I think there was also people who believe that poison was involved. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Like, I, I don't know what the preservation techniques for meat was back then. So, like, maybe it was just bad meat. I mean, I think it was entirely possible. I mean, the meat industry in that period of at that period of time in the history yeah. of this country was just horrific. I mean, it was just filled with corruption and political money exchanging hands, and meat was provided yeah. in cans, and like it was a lot of just rotten, disgusting things that were done to the meat because there was no reg- there was no regulation in the meat industry. Um, and I think Upton St. Clair Upton St. Clair read, wrote about it. The jungle. Yeah. Um, because it was just like the wild, wild west. I mean, you had sick and yeah. dying and, and dead animals that were all ground up into in with the live and normal animals. And mm-hmm. there was no absolutely no regulation as to what could be sold to consumers. Yeah. So, in any case. That's in your neck of the woods, that Upton Sinclair yes. book. It was a good book. Um, but in any case, um, there was speculation that perhaps it was that, perhaps it was poison. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, it's August 3rd. And that their Uncle John comes, and he sleeps in the guest room that night. And then the next morning, 
they all go out and have breakfast. So Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, John, and the maid were all there. I don't know where the sister Emma was at that point in time. Um, but John and Andrew then go into one of the sitting rooms, which is kind of like a little living room, but typically they would use it for business meetings or people that would come into yeah. the house and visit, had like this separate room for visitors. So they go into the sitting room and they chat for about an hour and Uncle John leaves around 8.48 a.m. So he's going out to buy some oxen and visit a niece. And he plans on coming back to the house for lunch. Like, it's crazy to me that, like, they got up, they had breakfast, they sat and chatted for an hour, and he's out the door by 8.50. Yeah. Like, that's so it's early. like, you know, <laughs> up at the crack of dawn. <laughs> yeah. So, in any case, um, the father, Andrew, goes for a walk sometime around 9 a.m. that morning. Mm-hmm. And Abby, the stepmom, goes upstairs to clean the guest room. And I guess this was one of Lizzie and Emma's chores that they were supposed to be doing, but Abby was doing it that morning. So she goes up there between 9 and 10.30 to make the bed. And I, it's really interesting, you know, the, the habits and stuff back then versus today. Like, if we have a guest in our house, like, we don't go in the guest room. Like, when the guest mm-hmm. is here, we don't go in until they leave. And then we go in and clean right. and do the sheets and all that kind of stuff. But back then, it was common to take care of your guests on a daily basis. The housekeeper would go in there, make the bed, take care of everything, put the clothes yeah, up. Like, basically like a yeah, hotel. Yeah, polish the shoes. Like, it was really kind of extensive, especially in upper yeah. crust kind of situations. But, um, so Abby's upstairs between 9 and 10.30 making the bed. And evidently, she was then struck on the side of her head with a hatchet. And it's said that she was facing her attacker when she was struck. And the first blow cut her just above the ear, which caused her to fall face down on the floor. And there were contusions on her nose and forehead and the killer struck her multiple times. And there were more than 17 direct blows to the back of her head, which eventually killed her. Good Lord. So it's brutal. And anytime you have more than one, two, three, what do you think? I mean, it's a little bit of overkill. It's a typical crime of passion, overkill. Um, And it's important, like, to to note that it was a hatchet, not an ax. Like, it was a small handheld. So the primary difference between a hatchet and an axe was an axe was large with a, like a pretty long wooden handle. And typically a hatchet was used to kind of make kindling and yeah. do little tasks around the house. So it's a smaller. Yes. It was more of like an indoor tool as opposed to the axe like outside where you would chop yes. wood and things. Exactly. So this is a smaller type of a weapon, which again, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're thinking of a woman killing someone with a weapon, are they going to choose, are they going to choose an axe? Typically not because it's a a heavy tool and it's hard to handle. And women at that time probably wouldn't have been very strong and definitely were not out chopping wood and whatnot, especially women of upper class means would not be out chopping wood and would not typically have the strength to lift a heavy axe and hit somebody 17 times with it. I don't know that I could lift a heavy axe. Like I, don't, I definitely don't think I could chop wood. I've never even tried, but I definitely don't think I could. Yeah, it's not an easy task. But with a hatchet, no. right. it's an entirely different kind of a thing. So then the dad, Andrew, returns around 1030. And 
he realizes his key isn't opening the door, which is interesting. So I wonder if they just had some sort of a deadbolt in place. But he mm. knocks on the door. Uh, and interesting then, that the house is locked up, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think typically during that time period, that wasn't common either. Right. Um, however, if you were of means and you, you know, had things that you were afraid were going to be damaged or stolen or whatever, you probably would lock the door. If Yeah, but, like, to me, that's more like if everybody's leaving the house. Like, if there's somebody staying at the house, like, I don't feel like you would lock the door. Yeah, but, but I think in, back then, the men would lock the door if they left mm. to protect the women. Gotcha. Okay. But in any case, he comes back and the doors, his key isn't opening the, the door. So he knocks and the maid comes down and unlocks the door. And it evidently was jammed. The door was jammed. Okay. Which, hmm, right? Yeah. She testified <laughs> at a later date that she heard Lizzie, the daughter, kind of laughing from the top of the stairs when she sees that the door is jammed. This is interesting because... Abby was pretty much already killed by that point. Dead, yeah. And her body would have been visible to anyone on the second floor of the home. Lizzie denies being upstairs and testifies that when her father returned that he asked her where Abby was and she had told her father that he, or excuse me, she had told her father that Abby had gone to visit a sick friend. Okay, so her father's on the fr- the ground floor, coming in the door. He's like, where's Abby? Right. Sees Lizzie up on the second floor, and he's like, where's Abby? And she's like, she went to go visit somebody who was sick. So Lizzie then goes downstairs and helps her dad remove his boots and put on his slippers. A little bit of Mr. Rogers <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, that's a very weird thing to help somebody do, but carry yeah, on. It was common back then um, for the women folk of the house to help the men remove their, their boots because they were heavy. and kind of men can do literally nothing. Right. <sighs> Especially men of affluence. So she right. helps him, you know, put his slippers on and lay down on the sofa for a nap. Um, evidently, though, the crime scene photos show him wearing boots. So she testifies, hey, I helped him take his boots off and covered him up and tucked him in on the couch for a nap. But when they find him, they find that he has boots on. She's, in the meantime, talking to the the housekeeper about a a department store sale and just kind of chit-chatting. And the maid says at that time, because they'd all been sick, remember, with the mutton thing, the maid Mm -hmm. says at that time she went to go take a nap in her room because she wasn't feeling well. Mm -hmm. She then says that she was sort of hanging out on, because her room was on the third floor, Typically during that period of time, mm-hmm. houses were three to four floors if you were affluent. And at the very top floors of the house, the female housekeepers and, and whatnot, the female servants would sleep. And in the basement was where the male servants would sleep, in the basement of the stables. Okay. So Sullivan, their, their maid, is sleeping in the attic, and she goes up there to take a little nap. And she basically had been cleaning the windows just before about 11 in the morning when she heard Lizzie call from downstairs that her father was dead, that somebody had come and killed him. The maid goes downstairs and sees Andrew, Lizzie's father, slumped on the couch in the sitting room. He had been struck 10 or 11 times with the same kind of hatchet that was used to kill Abby. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is going to be kind of gruesome, but I guess one of his eyes had been split clearly yeah. in, in like two. And this suggests yeah. that he'd been asleep when he'd been attacked. Um, his wounds were still bleeding 
So they say that when the maid found him, he was still kind of bleeding. So it must have been a very, very recent attack. Mm -hmm. uh, the family doctor gets to the house and <laughs> comes from just across the street and pronounces both Abby and Andrew dead. Detectives say that Andrew's death happened at about 11 a.m. Okay. Kind of narrow it down. I believe that initially... Lizzie calls out and says, Dad's dead, Dad's dead, right? And they start right. investigating, then that's the point where they find Abby as well. Okay. Um, because they, you know, this, Dad was attacked, and so they're looking around, you know, where's this attacker yeah. or whatever, and then they find Abby at that point. Gotcha, okay. So police are, you know, obviously questioning everyone on the scene, and Lizzie's answers are, like, kind of weird, and she contradicts herself a, a little bit. So initially she says that she heard like groaning and scraping and distress calls before entering the house. So she's saying that she wasn't in the house when this happened and that she came yeah, in. Yeah, she was like in the barn. Yeah, and that she came in and when she heard that something was going on. And two hours later then she says she heard nothing and entered the house not really realizing that anything was going on. And again, she testifies that she uh, had seen Abby get a note and knew that Abby had gone to visit a sick friend. So she has no reason to think that Abby would be in the house dead. So she's like basically are like accounting for her entire morning without being like asked. Right. Too much detail. Yeah. Um, but in any case, um, others testified that she thought Abby had returned and asked if somebody could go upstairs and look for her. So Sullivan, the maid, and the neighbor go up the stairs and they start looking into the guest room and they see Abby laying on the floor. Oh, okay. So it seems really, like, super shady. Yeah. So she's like, where's Abby? Yeah. Let's go find Abby. Somebody should go look for Abby. Right. She might be on the second floor. And lo and behold, Abby's on the second floor dead. We're going to talk about magic minds for a second here, folks. Um... I don't know about you, Darcy, but I'm addicted to caffeine. I cannot survive throughout the day without it. Yeah. And I definitely need to take a nap frequently because I'm always tired. Same. I love a nap. But, like, also, I'm, like, even when day is, like, where I get, have to get up with my dog early or whatever, like, I get up at 6.30 and I, like, have to have coffee. I can't, like, even think about anything before I have coffee. Like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to do anything before I have coffee. And I need to, like, process the fact that I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, that coffee does not always do good things to me. Like, it, right. caffeine makes me jittery. Yeah. And I definitely have issues when I have stuff with caffeine. I feel like I need it to survive throughout the day to wake me up and to keep me functioning. But when I do consume it, I end up being jittery and you know, these ups and down crashes and things like that throughout the day as well. I'll be super hyper for about an hour and then crash. Yeah. But our friends at Magic Mind kind of pointed out that there is this handy dandy little matcha flavored drink. It's a two ounce shot drink that you can take instead of consuming that or in addition to the coffee to kind of give you a more steady amount of energy throughout the day and focus mm -hmm. as well. What, what are the ingredients in this little bad boy? Yeah, so I, like you said, I like to take it with my coffee. I think it really helps. But So it's got that L-theanine, um, and when that's paired with caffeine, that helps you increase your focus and attention, which is good because I work from home, and if 
given the opportunity, I would gladly just get back in bed and not continue to work. Um, so having that focus really helps. It's got um, Bacopa monieri, which is a natural nootropic, um, and that helps with, with procrastination. And it shows that, um, it's kind of like Adderall, and it, it shows that it helps reduce your stress and your cortisol levels. And um, it's also got ashwagandha and rhodiola in it. And and we both take it, yeah, we both taken this outside of the magic mind. Um, and both of these ingredients help decrease stress and anxiety, which I struggle yes. with oh, me too. on the regular. Who among us doesn't? Right, <laughs> especially that right now, this time of year. Um, and it also has lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms that help boost your clarity and focus. So all just these really natural good things that that um, that help you focus and it helps you um stay awake without the jitters that, that you get a lot of times with drinking a pot of coffee, a pot of coffee, which is what I'm currently doing. So, um, and it tastes really good. Yeah. You can feel good about yourself and you can feel better, you know, with what you're consuming when you drink magic mine. It's just a great product and I wouldn't recommend it unless it worked. Right. Right. Now you can drink it straight at room temperature. You can chill it. You can put it on ice. You can mix it in with smoothies. There's a whole lot mm-hmm. of things that you can do with this drink. It's a great, great product, and we would not advocate for it if we didn't like it. So, what is our discount code? Yeah, so we have a discount code, so you can get 20% off a subscription at MagicMind.co/bizarre. B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. And then I'll get you 20% off with the discount code BIZARRE20. Awesome. So go check that out. We will also drop the code for that into our show notes. So now back to the regularly scheduled program. Um, Okay. So last point that we were at, they found Abby laying face down on the floor in the guest room. Um, There's varying accounts of how they found her that way. But I think the general belief is that mm-hmm. Lizzie in some way indicated when they asked her where Abby was that she had thought Abby had gone to visit and that she to visit a sick friend and was probably home now and could be somewhere on the second floor. So somebody should go look. And that's when they find Abby. Mm-hmm. So then the police start to interview Lizzie and they say that they do not like the way she is acting. That she's a little bit too calm and collected for just having realized that her mother, her stepmother and her father were dead. Like, gruesomely dead. Yeah. Murdered very brutally. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. And different people have different reactions to stress and grief and and things of that nature. Um, So... I would just say that, you know, you got, we got to take that with a grain of salt. But in any sure. case, the police believe that she was just way too calm for this. And the fact that she kept changing her alibis and no one had looked for bloodstains. They go, they search her room, the police did, and they don't really find much. And they admit later that they really hadn't done an extensive search right. because she indicated that she didn't feel well. Yes, and when a woman says she doesn't feel well, every man backs off because, oh my God, she might be on her period. Yeah. Back then, you know, and especially if you were of means, there was kind of this perception that the rules didn't apply. Right. 
So what they would normally do for somebody else and do this extensive search into their room, they wouldn't do with people of means because maybe that person could make sure that their their job, they get fired from their job or something right. of that nature. Um, in the basement of their house, the police find two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head that had that broken handle was thought to have been the murder weapon. Yeah. Because the break in the handle appeared to be recent. There was also kind of like some thought that there was ash and dust on the head of the axe that looked like somebody had recently kind of put it on there in an attempt to sort of... Interesting. Make it blend in with the axes and, and different things that were down there in the basement. That looked like it, make it look like it had been sitting down there for a while. Yeah. Make it look like it had been hanging out down there for yeah. quite a while. Um, they didn't take any of these from the house. I mean... Um, <laughs> because of this kind of strange illness that had kind of taken over the household before the murders, the milk and... They removed Andrew and Abby's stomachs during the autopsies, and they were tested for poison. None was found. So, uh, that is, okay. (laughs) I mean, like, I guess that would help answer a question, but that's clearly not their cause of death. So, like, what are we doing? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think that quite a few people in this community suspected Lizzie of sort of trying to poison them. Mm-hmm. Evidently, she had bought this acid, kind of a diluted kind of acid at the local drugstore. And she said she purchased it so that she could clean her furs. Various other people say, mm, that's not the right kind of product right. for cleaning a fur. But um, what's weird is that Lizzie and Emma have this friend who comes to stay with them the night following the murders. Why are they having people over... Why yeah. are they still in the house? Like, it just seems yeah. super creepy. The uncle is still there, and he spent the night in the attic guest room, not the murder site guest room, where he had been previously. Yeah, but, like, why are they even still in the house at all? <clears throat> I don't know. That's super creepy. But the police are pretty much stationed around the house, and they're kind of checking things out just to make sure nothing else happens. But evidently they saw Lizzie go into the cellar with this Alice person, their Mm -hmm. friend, and they're carrying a kerosene lamp and this pail, which Mm -hmm. they call it a slot pail, but it's basically just something that they would use to put all the um, food and different things like that that they weren't eating, like they weren't going to eat. Like they're clearing the table off, right? Mm -hmm. And there's people weren't eating everything that was on their plate, so they would just scrape it off into the slop pail. Right. And that would go to the pigs or, you know, out to an area in the yard, typically. Right. Where they would dispose of it. Because they didn't have trash pickup like they have now. Yeah. Witnesses say they saw both of these ladies leave the cellar and Borden returned alone. And they didn't see what she was doing, but it looked like she was bent over the sink. The next night... The uncle was mobbed by a bunch of people as he leaves the house, and police have to escort him back. So I think that, you know, people in that community, were when they heard about the murder, were just super freaked out. Yeah. So the police are kind of watching over things, but, like, they're still living in the house and going about their lives almost like nothing happened. 
which is like very poor police work. Yeah, which is super strange. And I guess they were just kind of doing ongoing searches of the house and the sister's clothing. And they eventually did confiscate the hatchet head. And (laughs) that evening of August 6th, the mayor visits them along with a police officer. And at that time, Lizzie is told that she's a suspect. It's reported that the following morning after she's told that she's a suspect, they find her in the kitchen tearing up a dress. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And she says she was going to get rid of it because it was covered in paint. Right. And they never really determined whether that dress had been, you know, something that she could have worn during the murders. They didn't test it for blood. They didn't look. They just let her go about her business. Right. She goes in for this sort of, they, they, they question her on August 8th. What's interesting is that she says, I want my attorney. Our family attorney needs to be with me. And they told her no. They can't do that. They didn't have the rules back then about how you have to have an attorney present. I guess so. And I guess there were laws back then in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, which pretty much dictated that if they're doing an inquest, they called it an inquest hearing, uh-huh. that it has to be in private. So rules are different. Laws are different. They didn't have the same kind of things where you had to be able to have your attorney present if you wanted. So evidently they found out that Lizzie had been prescribed morphine to calm her nerves. Yeah. Also interesting. Did you know morphine was a something used for that something like that? Yeah, I mean it, I mean morphine? It's, yeah. I thought it was a painkiller. It is, but it'll also sedate you. I mean it's morphine is basically heroin. Great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, and they're saying that her testimony could have been impacted by this. Yeah. And she that her sedated. behavior was erratic as a consequence because she was refusing to answer questions and only answered questions that were a benefit to her. Right. And she kept contradicting herself like she had done earlier, giving a bunch of different stories about what she was doing the day of the murder, saying first she was in the kitchen reading a magazine, then saying she was in the dining room doing ironing, then saying she was going to do something downstairs. She also said she'd kind of removed her dad's boots and put slippers, but the, the photos that the police show show him wearing boots. Right, like very so like, clearly wearing boots. Get your act together. Yeah. Okay, so the district attorney is pretty aggressive in this whole thing, and August 11th, they serve Lizzie with a warrant of arrest, and they throw her in jail. God, they're moving fast. That's like, what, a week they after? Did. They're not playing around over there in Fall Rivers. What's interesting is that this inquest that she was a part of that led to her being arrested and thrown in jail was later ruled inadmissible. Uh, Why? Because it, quote, it caused a change of opinion among her friends who have heretofore strongly maintained her innocence. The inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. So basically, it was prejudicial. Again, the rules of yeah. the law were, and, you know, leading up to trials and whatnot were a little bit different back then. Yeah. But this grand jury gets the evidence on November 7th, and Borden is then indicted December 2nd. And she goes to trial. The trial takes place in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and starts June 5th, 1893. Okay. What's interesting is that five days before the trial starts, On June 1st, another axe murder had occurred in Fall River. Really? 
The victim of this one was Bertha Manchester, and she had been found hacked to death in her kitchen. Good Lord. There were a lot of similarities between these two murders, and the jurors noted this as well. A Portuguese immigrant by the name of Jose Correa de Mello Uh was later convicted of the Manchester murder in 1894. Yeah. They also found and determined that this same man had not even been in the area of Fall River at the time of the Borden murder. So it couldn't have been the same person who did these, both of these. Okay, so just interesting. So they did bring in the fact that they saw Lizzie kind of trying to get rid of that dress. But they didn't mm-hmm. find that there was blood on it. So they just saw her burning it and let her do it. Right. Cause she, well, and, she, and she had a ready-made excuse by saying there's paint on it. Yeah. And... Too. So, like, if they see something, they're not looking that close. Oh, it's just, it's just paint. I think the fact that Lizzie was at the home during this whole thing is also super shady. Because, like, how mm-hmm. do you not hear anything? And how do you... You know what I'm saying? Say you're not anywhere near, not yeah. responsible when you're in the house at a time that two people are brutally murdered with an axe. Well, and part of her story, one of her stories, is that she was in the yeah. barn. That's one, one story Which would explain she why gave. she didn't hear anything, but that's one of them. And it, it, they kept she says she left 20 minutes or possibly half an hour. And there were people that did testify mm-hmm. to seeing her leaving the barn, that you know, testifying that she had indeed been in the barn. Both victims' heads had been removed during the autopsy, and the skulls were admitted as evidence mm-hmm. during the trial. <laughs> it's reported that Lizzie fainted when she saw them, which, wouldn't you? I mean, that's awful. I mean, that would be very shocking. Uh, they also excluded evidence that Lizzie bought prussic acid from a uh-huh. seal skin, for cleaning a sealskin cloak. Again, remember I said earlier that there were reports that she had purchased acid? Yeah. But they would, they would not allow that to be admitted into evidence. They said that it was too remote in time to have any correlation to the murders. Okay, interesting. After about an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquits Lizzie of the murders. Right. And she takes off, and she's walking down out of the courthouse and says that she's, quote, the happiest woman in the world, which seems yeah, really like, bizarre. Your, your dad still was brutally yeah. murdered. Like. So... It's like O.J. being like, oh, I'm going to commit everything I have to finding out who killed Nicole and Ron Goldman. Yeah. Like, serious. So although she's acquitted, I think throughout history, she has long been thought to have been the person that murdered oh, yeah. her father and stepmother. There are people that speculate that she may have been sort of in a fugue state. You know what a fugue state is, right? Yeah. Why don't you, can you explain what that is briefly? I mean, it's basically like a blackout, but without like taking any of the substances like that would make you black out so like you're not taking drugs you're not on alcohol but like you have no memory of like sleepwalking where you yeah where you've been for whatever period of time it is you have no memory of doing any of the actions but you're fully awake you're fully alert you're everything's working right you're you could drive somewhere you could talk to people and you just had no memory of it yeah but there was also some speculation that she was physically and sexually abused by her father which drove her to kill him but they don't really have any evidence to back that up. Yeah, that also doesn't explain why she killed her stepmother first. Yeah, again, too. totally. There, this is an interesting kind of a side note story that is thought to be part of it as well, is there are people that believe that Lizzie committed these murders because she'd been caught having an affair with the maid. Oh, that's a new one. That she was, um, she was gay. And because that was so unacceptable back then, particularly if mm-hmm. you came from a very religious background, 
that it pretty much, if somebody discovered that or discovered you in, you know, having an affair or in sexual relations with somebody of the same sex, that it was pretty much you were a goner. That's interesting. And they speculate that she was having this sort of affair with the maid and that they found out about it and she pretty much killed them when they reacted in horror and disgust. Hmm. There's, there was no evidence to that and no one ever had any evidence that the maid was gay either. Right. Because she later went on to marry a man. She met while working in Montana and she, you know, died. Well, actually she died when she was on her deathbed. The maid actually said that she had protected Borden on the stand by lying. How did, what did she, what did she lie about? That Lizzie wasn't the murderer. Oh, but like, okay. The uncle is also a suspect in this. Mm -hmm. Because he had slept in the house the night before the murders. And provided this, like, absolutely perfectly detailed alibi when Abby was killed. But he was also considered a suspect by the police for quite a long time. Um, others say that potential suspects could have been the maid. Mm-hmm. as retaliation for being ordered to, you know, work really, really, really hard, even though everyone was ill. There was also a man suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son who was noted as a possible suspect. So there was all kinds of other people that thought, you know, all kinds of different reasons why somebody would come in and kill these two. Yeah. But after the trial was done and Lizzie was declared innocent, the Borden sisters move into a large modern house they're in the hill neighborhood of Fall River. So they yeah, go they, and, moved, they moved on up. They get into the affluent area after that. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't blame them for leaving the murder house. Um, and Elizabeth, Lizzie starts going by the name Elizabeth A. Borden instead of Lizzie mm-hmm. Borden, uh, which doesn't really seem like a significant difference to me. And she also, like, basically just moved up the street, so it's not, yeah, <laughs> like... But yeah. Um, they call their new house Maplecroft, which seems really, like... Sounds like like an old school romance novel. So I guess there was some kind of a settlement that was also kind of controversial because Abby Mm -hmm. died before Andrew. Mm -hmm. Her estate first went to Andrew Mm -hmm. at his death and then on to the daughters. And the family thought that the estate should have gone to them because, you know, these girls weren't his real relative, weren't the real relatives of Abby. But I guess there was a settlement that was paid to Abby's family later. And... Lizzie was basically ostracized by Fall River Society, which can you blame them? And it's really shocking to me that they didn't move out of Fall River. Yeah, I don't know why they wouldn't have. I would have left, but I don't know the circumstances of what it takes to move in 1890s as a single woman. So, Well, it was together. The two of them lived together. I know, but they're still single women. So, like, this is the time, like, where you can't, like, go to a restaurant unescorted by a man. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't know what it. Like, if they were able to buy a house without, a, like, a husband or a father or somebody. I don't know. Yeah. You know? That, again, is interesting as well. I guess Lizzie was accused of shoplifting in 1897 in Providence, Rhode Island, and this kind of got her in some hot water. And then in 1905, she has this big blowout with her sister at a party, and her sister moves out of the house, and they never see each other again. Hmm. So Borden was pretty sick the last years of her life. Um, She had her gallbladder removed, and then she died of pneumonia June 1st, 1927, in Fall River. And then her sister Emma died nine days later. Wow. Um, Neither one of them married 
and they were buried side by side at the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. When she died, Lizzie was worth about twenty-five or two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is equivalent to about five point two million now. Oof. She owned a house in the corner of French Street and Belmont Street, several buildings, and then. She shared several utilities, two cars, and a large amount of jewelry. She left some of her money to the Fall River, the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and then she put a trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Oh, interesting. Just interesting. Um, she gave some money to one of her friends and money to the estate's distribution, and numerous fans, numerous friends and family members each got some cash. Hmm. But interesting story, though. Yeah, and now you can stay at the Lizzie Borden house. It's a bed and breakfast. Yes. I guess we talked about the sale of that bed and breakfast in an episode a while back. Oh, did we? Yeah, because it was supposed to be like this scary place that you can come stay, and they put it up for sale at one point, and I think it was going for some, like, a couple million. Yeah. It was was pricey. Yeah. But interesting. Very interesting indeed. Um, We're going to go ahead and... Do you have any questions? I do not. Anything else to add before we wrap this one up? Do not. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFDpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Instagram, so we'll post all kinds of good pics of uh, Lizzie and the 40 Wax, and she found her father and gave oh 41. And... Did you say that little poem when you were a kid? I never knew it as a kid. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 or something like it was just like a little ch- a children's nursery rhyme or something. Yeah, like that. it was basically like a nursery rhyme, but I, I never knew it as a kid. I only like learned it. We did. When I was older. Super creepy. Yeah. Um, can you imagine being a little kid and chanting that? Very inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then in any case, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.